tonight and did not pick up one of your free little booklets here, the Citizen's Rule Book. Uh, one to a family, please, and we'll have enough to last me for a few weeks anyway, but you're welcome to take one. And there is a place on the back where you could actually, or I think on the back or the inside, where you can order more. Yes, on the inside. Uh, I actually went to the printers right there in Phoenix and got some copies. So you can order more if you'd like to get more. So they're free for the taking. All right, take your Bibles, please, and for the next couple of hours... <clears throat> I mean, George Whitfield would preach for four hours in a field. I, I imagine people sat. I don't know if they stood for all that time. but uh, And they had revival. Maybe we don't have enough preaching. That's why we don't have revival. I don't know. But we're glad to see you tonight. This is a good Monday night group. And I hope the Lord will bless his word to your heart. How many of you like gardening? Now, how many of you like gardens? There's a difference in gardening and a garden. I'm talking. I'm not talking about the kind you have to dig and plant potatoes. I'm talking about the beautiful kind, the floral garden. Have you, did they have flower gardens? Um, you know, Pennsylvania, I don't know if you know, I'm sure you do. Pennsylvania is the home to one of the world's top world-class gardens called Longwood Gardens down in, in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Over the years of time, Barb and I, as we've traveled, have had the opportunity to visit Cypress Gardens and Butchert Gardens and the Royal Botanical Gardens up in Canada, as well as Longwood Gardens. And, uh, and there's one I forgot to mention. It's, um, it's the one up in, uh, up in British Columbia, uh, Butchert, Butchert Gardens. I mentioned that, Butchert Gardens. That's an old, that's an old uh, place where they were digging out, uh, what do you call it, a, a, a quarry. And the, the uh, supervisor's wife lived in the house, and she didn't like all the mess that was around. So when they got done quarrying an area, she covered it with dirt and planted flowers. And today it's a world-class uh, garden. It's absolutely gorgeous. And, and I never knew there were so many different kinds of tools. That's the season to go. Roses are I love roses, but uh, they've got tulips all over the place. And tulip season is absolutely spectacular. And again, I never knew there were so many different kinds of tulips. Anyway, I want to speak to you tonight about gardens. There are three specific gardens I'd like to examine with you tonight. And if you'll begin with me, turning in Genesis chapter 3, obviously we're going to start with the Garden of Eden. I have subtitled this, The Garden of Disobedience. We pick up our reading in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For the Bible says that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then jump down to verses 15 and following. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God only put one rule in the Garden of Eden. Man was there by himself. Man had the opportunity to name all the animals and things and and God came and said, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. My daughters keep reminding me of that. 
since Barb is going home to be with the Lord, Dad, it's not good for you to be alone. I said, well, right now, that's what God has for me. God has not brought anybody else into my life as of yet. And uh, that's not, I'm not opposed to it, but so forth, that's the way it is. In fact, my grandson, when he was about five years old, came home from daycare and wanted to know where daddy was. And, and uh, mommy said, well, daddy's home. He got home early today. And he said, mommy, we must hurry. God says it's not good for man to be alone, you know. Well, it's interesting to me, and I don't know, I don't know what to make of this. And I hope you don't make more of it than, than needs to be made. But God says it's not good for man to be alone. But he never said that about the woman. Is it perhaps because women are more independent? I, I don't know. Uh, they can maybe get along better by themselves without us guys, you know. There are ten reasons, you know, why God made Eve. You know, you know what they are? You never, you never heard that? All right, I got this from Mike McCubbins. Let me interject this here. Lord, forgive me for a little bit of humor at the beginning. Uh, God made Eve for ten reasons. Number ten, going from number ten to number one. God worried that Adam would always be lost in the garden because men hate to ask for directions. That's so familiar. Number nine, God knew that Adam would one day need someone to hand him the TV remote. Men don't want to see what's on TV. They want to see what else is on. Now, that was Barb. That was my wife. She'd watch three programs at the same time. We got to the point where all she was watching, changing channels, was commercials. They got commercials at the same time. Number eight, God knew that Adam would never buy a new fig leaf when his seat wore out and therefore would need Eve to get one for him. Number seven, God knew that Adam would never make a doctor's appointment for himself. That's probably pretty true. There's no need to. Ain't sick, don't if it ain't sick, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Number six, God knew that Adam would never remember which night was garbage night. Barb would say, Honey, take out the take out the trash when you go out. I say, What trash as I stumble over it? You know, hey, hey ladies, just finish the job. If you gather up all the trash, don't leave it but just take it out and put it where it belongs, right? You should see the looks I'm getting from the women here. It's called finish the job. Right, anyway, there goes the love offering, right? I'm going to owe change. With, anyway, forget garbage night. Number five, God knew that if the world was to be populated, men would never be able to handle child rearing. Number four, as keeper of the garden, Adam would never remember where he put his tools. Why would Eve know? Number two, the scripture account of creation indicates Adam needed someone to blame his troubles on when God caught him hiding in the garden. That's number three. Number two, as the Bible says, it is not good for man to be alone. And the number one reason God created Eve, come back tomorrow night and I'll tell you, right? You ready for this? When God finished creating Adam, he stepped back, scratched his head and said, I can do better than that. <laughs> Had to be written by a woman. Anyway, now let's get serious, all right? So we have the Garden of Eden. I've called this the Garden of Disobedience because this is where man fell into sin. We notice the word Eden, by the way, means pleasure. God created man, the book of Revelation says, for his own pleasure. God created mankind, put him in a beautiful garden that God himself had made. Can you imagine what that garden was like? No weeds. Uh, no, no thorns, no briars, uh, nothing that was bad. And, and God put him there to keep the garden. I've often wondered as I thought about this, 
What was involved for Adam in the keeping of the garden? For example, did he have to cut the grass? And if he did, what did he do with the clippings? They didn't need a compost pile. Nothing rotted, nothing decayed. And if he had to cut the grass, maybe they made a stew out of it. I don't know. And he would cut the... It was, whatever it was, folks, it was not hard, sweaty, back-breaking work like it is today. All of that came, we know, as a result of sin. And in chapter 3 and verses 6 to 8, we find man's rebellion against God in this very garden. Uh, let me begin at verse 1, if I may, so we kind of get the context here. Uh, actually, we don't need to jump down to verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to be make one wise, there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same three things you and I struggle with every day. She uh, took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So he was right there. Why, why did he not stop her? Why did Adam not say, Eve, honey, you can't do that. God said don't do that. But folks, in their disobedience, they said, well, we know what God said, but. My dear friend, listen, if you know what God says, there are no buts. Ours, like we used to say in the Navy, ours is not to question why. Ours is but to do and die. Do or die, you know, whatever. Um, But the fact is that uh, he did not stop her. And she gave unto him, and he ate knowingly, willingly, and defiantly. And the eyes of them both were opened. Notice, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Why? Because they were ashamed. We're going to, Satan said, well, you're going to know just like God knows. Well, they found out some things that God knew, but it wasn't from God's perspective. There was no shame and a husband and a wife being without clothing in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin. It was total innocence until they disobeyed God. And that innocence was turned into shame. And they tried to cover. They at least had enough sense to try to cover their nakedness. Now today, everybody's trying to expose it. Uh, I don't understand people today, mostly girls. Sorry about that, gals. Uh, who walk around with these blue jeans that are all shredded and holy and torn up. And I, I'm told that they're, they're not from being worn out. They're bought that way. So you're paying good money for damaged merchandise. And Anyway, uh, trying to expose as much skin as we dare. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves to the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Man rebelled against God in this garden of pleasure. We don't think so much of the Garden of Eden anymore as this beautiful landscape thing that God gave and, and the fruit trees. And, and it was absolute perfection. We know it as the Garden of Disobedience, the Garden of Rebellion. Every, every time you think of the Garden, Eden, what, Garden of Eden, you don't just think of Adam and Eve. You think of Adam, Eve, the fruit, whatever it was, and the serpent. And in this garden, in this passage, we find that death was demanded. God said, if you eat of it, you're going to die. Now, the agnostic and the liberal comes along and says, why? The Bible's not true. God, they didn't die. Uh, Adam lived 936 years. Now, wait a minute. How do you know Adam lived 936 years? Because Genesis 6 says so. All right. Now, wait a minute, folks. You don't have the option to pick and choose what you're going to like out of the Bible. It's all or nothing. 
You cannot take one part of the Bible to disprove another part of the Bible. You can't take the passage that says he lived 936 years to prove the Bible's wrong here in Genesis chapter 3. If it's wrong in chapter 3, who's to say it's not wrong in Genesis chapter 6 where it says it was 936 years. Maybe it's it less, maybe it's more. The Bible, if it's wrong in one place, could be wrong elsewhere as well. The demand of death, the soul that sinneth, the Bible says, it shall die. Now, folks, I want to submit to you that Adam and Eve died the very moment they disobeyed God. You say, wait a minute, the Bible says he lived 936 years. Understand what death is. Death is merely separation. Physical death is separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is separation of the soul from God. And I submit to you that the very moment Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, at that very instant, they became separated from God spiritually. Notice they ran, they tried to hide themselves when they heard the voice of God. Now, how long they had lived together before this happened, I don't know. I don't suppose it was a real long time, but there was enough time that they had enjoyed talks with God in the cool of the day. God would come down and fellowship with the crowning point of his creation, created in his own image, in his own likeness. Can you imagine what that fellowship was like, unbroken with sin? One day we will know, amen, if you know the Lord, we'll be with him and we'll get to experience that unbroken fellowship. And so they tried to hide themselves. The Bible says, whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, behold, thou art there. If I make my bed in, in, in Sheol, the grave, behold, thou art there. Listen, folks, there's no place you can go to get away from God. Now, I, I want to I take a little bold statement here, and I hope Pastor agrees with me, but he may not. Um, there are some who don't. I believe one of the most horrible things about hell is the presence of God. Folks, they have eternity to realize who God was. Now, God's presence may not literally be there, but there's enough of his presence that's constantly in their mind. Only if, only if I had responded, only if I had trusted Christ, only, only, only if, for eternity, but no hope of ever getting right with God. There's a sense of God's presence in hell that, is, that is, has got to be a terrible, terrible thing. You cannot get away from it. There's no place where you can escape the presence of God. And uh, in, in uh, Hebrews 9.27, the Bible says, It is appointed unto man once to die. You know, the evening before Barb passed away, she, she went home to be with the Lord about 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we were watching TV, and it must have been something funny because she was laughing hysterically. If you remember Barb, she had an infectious laugh. And we used to talk about, there she goes. And she would, we found those called mom's cracking, you know. She just laughed hysterically. She couldn't stop. And everybody else starts laughing in the room. And you're not laughing because whatever happened is funny. You're laughing because her laugh makes you laugh, you know, that kind of a thing. And so anyway, why did I start to say that? There is a reason. Oh, I know what I was going to say. And, uh, and about 10 o'clock, she got up to get a snack and, she had had a knee surgery for a torn meniscus a month earlier, and, and it wasn't healing properly. Went to the doctor about a week before she died, and they couldn't find anything wrong. And about 10 o'clock at night, she got up to get a snack. She turned to me. She said, honey, she almost fell over. She said, something is terribly wrong. I've never been this week before in my life. Her blood pressure earlier that day was 200 over 110. And so she got her snack, and three hours later, she was gone. Several people asked me, well, are you going to sue the doctor? Why would I sue the doctor? 
Folks, listen, even if, they had, even if we had gotten her to the ER and they found the blood clot, which it was, a pulmonary embolism, blood clot to the lung, there's nothing they could have done. The Bible says, and we have to go back to the scripture, the Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die. That was Barb's appointment with the Lord. And I, I found her the next morning, about eight hours later, I woke up and, and she was gone and, and I called to her, she didn't respond and, and uh, the paramedics came, and, and they confirmed that she had passed away. And, and they, had to, they had to do an investigation. They had to call the sheriff and everybody because she died. Whenever there's a death in the house, they, they come and investigate. Of course, I'm the prime suspect. See if there's any foul play. And uh, anyway, I said, Lord, you took her and left me. It's like God said to me, well, be patient, buddy. You're in a later bus. Her work is done. She can come home. Your work's not done, so get busy. And by God's grace, that's what I've tried to do these past two and a half years. It was an appointment with death. An appointment that none of us can escape. Now, uh, my brother-in-law has a death sentence. He's been ter- uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, maybe six months, nine months, maybe, maybe possibly a year with the chemo if it works. You know, I could die long before him. I could die before the service is over. I don't know when my appointment with death is, but God does. And God has an appointment for each of us here tonight. And so the Garden of Eden becomes known as the Garden of Disobedience. Turn please now to Matthew chapter 26, as you, if you will please. And we'll go to the second of our Bible gardens. Matthew chapter 26. And while you're there, I want to go over to John chapter I think it's 18, so you go to Matthew 26, I'll go to John 18, and I'll catch up with you, all right? In John 18 and verse 1, the Bible says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered, and his disciples, and we know that to be the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane back in January, uh, they don't suspect that any of the trees, the, all the trees that are there today were, uh, were ones that stood there in Jesus' time, but probably the root system was. Because uh, they're huge trees, and they, the older they are, the bigger around they get, the more roots they have going out. So it's very likely that they're the result of trees that were there when Jesus was there in the garden. It's a very moving thing to, to think, where was he praying? He went about a stone's cast away, and of course, what's left of the Garden of Gethsemane is not very large, maybe maybe the size of here uh, uh, and back to that the foyer in that area. Maybe that's maybe a little bit bigger. It's not a very large garden today. Gethsemane means oil press. There was a press there where the uh, oil would be pressed between two rocks and two stones, and we find here in Matthew chapter twenty-six and verse thirty-six. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto them, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he went a little further, verse 39, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as thou wilt. So this is the garden of Gethsemane. Go now please to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and I want to pick up our reading there in verse 39. 
the Garden of Gethsemane and the, uh, the Mount of Olives are, are pretty much the same thing. The Mount of Olives is up on the upper register. Uh, it's kind of, you come out of uh, the Eastern Gate, which is now closed up. You cross the, the uh, Kidron Brook, and there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And then up on the hill is the Mount of Olives. It's kind of part of the same thing. And verse 39 says, uh, And there came out, and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray ye that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou, uh, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Folks, here is the sovereign, omnipotent God of heaven in human form. Is that not what Jesus Christ was, God in the flesh? And yet here in this instance, angels created beings by him come to minister to him and to strengthen him. And verse 44 says, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were, not literally, but as it were, his sweat was as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Oil press, a place of agony for the olives that were being pressed. Our Lord in this garden experience here was being pressed as no one has ever been pressed in that sense before. Uh, we have gone through, people, human beings go through a lot of torture, a lot of different things, but no one ever suffered like the Lord Jesus Christ suffered in bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. In the garden of disobedience, the garden of Eden, man rebelled against God. Death was demanded. But here in the garden of, of Gethsemane, which I'm going to subtitle the garden of denial, we have man's rejection of the Son of God. Judas came, the betrayer, and betrayed him with a kiss, a token of affection. In Luke chapter 22, and we're here in Luke 22, so let's go to verse, uh, verse 54. And they took him and led him and brought him unto the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And in the following verses, we find in verse 57 and verse 60 and verse 58, uh, Jesus, or rather uh, Peter, denied the Lord Jesus Christ, even never knowing him. And he uses some foul, vile language, and then the Bible says, and Peter, well, let me look at verse uh, 61, and the Lord turned and uh, looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Here we have in the Garden of Gethsemane the rejection of Jesus Christ by his own people. All of his disciples, including John, forsook him and left him. The Bible specifically singles out Peter and says he followed afar off. Not too close so as to be identified, but finally John is already under conviction. John's already gone down. He evidently knew the people there, and he was able to gain entrance for Peter, and Peter tries to hide himself amongst the crowd. And he is identified, and three times, as Jesus predicted, he would be denied. Keep your finger here. Well, you don't need to keep your finger. Go to, go to Titus chapter 1. Let me share a verse there that is, a, I think, a, a powerful, powerful verse. And one that we need to heed and take to heart. Titus chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. Paul writes and says, Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. 
but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Is that not true of much of our country today? These rioters and these protesters, folks, they're not protesting peacefully. They're trying to overthrow the system. But here's what what God says. Some of these are people who profess to be Christians. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Notice the next phrase, being abominable and disobedient. Not what they do is, although it was, but in their character, in their nature, they're an abomination to God. They're disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Let me share an incident that happened to me when I was in India about the time that Bill Clinton was under investigation and uh, for the Monica Lewinsky affair. I feel, I feel badly for her, folks. She goes down in infamy. Everywhere, anytime you think of Bill Clinton, you think of Monica Lewinsky. And they, they showed a picture of, of Bill Clinton coming out of a Southern Baptist church with a, with a big oversized Bible under his hand during that same time. Folks, that was an embarrassment to me as an American. It was an embarrassment to me even more, more seriously as a believer. You know why? Because people in India would say, oh, that's Christianity for you. You remember when, uh, oh, who was it? The guy who got caught, the, the singer Jimmy Swagger got caught with the, with the prostitutes three times. I had been working, I was living in Chester, PA at the time, and, and I had been working with a gal who ran, ran the cleaners, and, and I was getting the nice, some good conversations with her, you know, and we would talk about the ministry and different things, and, and then that blew up, and guess what? She said to me, oh, when she found out I was an evangelist, oh, she said, you're one of those. No, I'm not one of those. But you know what? The sin of Jimmy Swaggart spoiled the opportunity to continue that relationship with that lady and sharing the gospel. She would never listen to me again or even talk to me. I'm one of those. No, I'm not one of those. And by the way, if Jimmy Swaggart, who claimed that he lost his salvation and had to get saved, he went to Oral Roberts to get saved. When do you go to Oral Roberts to get saved? Folks, Oral Roberts is not the Savior. If he was saved when he committed it, he was saved when he committed it. He didn't lose the salvation. He lost it and, and got it and lost it and got it. Man, he couldn't hang on to it. And he condemns us. I heard him one time talk about the, these Baptists and their, and their doctrinal doo-doo. This idea of the eternal security of the believer. Folks, he said one time, I heard him say that the people who believe always saved, once saved, always saved. That means you can do anything you want to. No, we don't believe that. As a child of God, we are eternally secure, kept by the power of God, uh, kept in the Father's hand. No man can pluck us out of the Father's hand. They say, well, you could jump out. You think you're more powerful than God is? And number two, why would you want to? If you're truly saved. Uh, and folks, the, the fact is, these people say, well, you know, that, that, that's not true. Oh, what is true? Folks, and, and the fact of the matter is that, that we are eternally saved. We believe that once we're saved, we're always saved. That does not give us the license to do whatever we want. It gives us the liberty to do what we ought to do through the power of the Spirit of God. These guys believe you can't, can't keep yourself saved. They're the ones who go out and live like the devil and live any way they want to. And they just, well, I'll go get saved all over again. No, How many times do you have to get born? Physically, you know. <laughs> There's one physical birth and there's one spiritual birth. And either you have it or you don't. As one old color friend of mine said, either you is or you ain't. 
And that's the way it is. And so the garden of denial, Jesus was rejected. And here death was demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Without the shedding of blood is no remission for sin. Let me go back to the book of Isaiah. If you want to join me there, you may. Isaiah chapter 53. Probably one of the most dynamic passages of scripture in all the Bible with respect to the finished work of Christ in our behalf. Prophesied some 700 years before it happened. I'm specifically looking at verses 3 to 6. He, Christ, is despised and rejected of men. Guess what, folks? He not only was then, he is today. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He's talking about the people of God here, Israel. Surely he, Christ, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, again, Israel, his people, uh, did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Why are there so many religions in the world? There's your answer. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, the Father hath laid on the Son, the iniquity of us all. And so in the garden of disobedience, man rebelled against God, and death was demanded. And then, of course, in the garden of denial, Gethsemane, man's rejection of the Lord Jesus, and the ultimate demonstration of that death. Now turn, please, to John chapter 19. And you know where I'm going with this one, right? John chapter 19. Verses 41 and 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. I, when I was in Israel, visited what's known as Gordon's Calvary. It's the only place in the entire city that has a hillside that could even closely resemble a skull. Though, when you go to visit it, you get... You get to walk up some steps at a platform and look at it. There's a bunch of buses parked. You really don't get a, a good view of it. It's very commercialized right now. And by the way, when you go into the, where the garden tomb is and, and Calvary, uh, Muslim tour guides will not enter that place. They'll take you to it, and you're on your own. I believe it's run by the Anglican Church of England. And if it is, I, you know, I'm not a fan of Anglicanism because it's nothing more than Henry VIII pulled away from the Pope and the, and the Roman Church because he couldn't get a divorce uh, permission from the Pope. And so that's how the Anglican Church are. They're my churches now, and they don't owe allegiance to the Pope, but their doctrine is very much like Roman Catholic doctrine. But there have been some of the archbishops who have been truly born-again men. And I want to tell you something, folks. You go, everybody that visits the garden tomb, everybody... You have, a, you have a guide that works there, not just your tour guide. Your tour guide takes you in there, and then you're turned over to these other guides. And they, they give you the gospel. I, was, I, I sat there almost in tears. 
Every person that visits the garden tomb gets a clear gospel presentation that's, that's you know, 10, 12 minutes long, more powerful than anything I could ever preach. And then we went to the tomb right near there. It's whether, there's some debate whether it's actually where Jesus was buried. Or there's some who believe it was in the Church of the Sepulchre, again run by the Catholics, I don't know. But uh, be that as it may, it's, it's, it's very near where, where this Calvary, Gordon's Calvary is. And you go in there and see the place where the body of Jesus lay. And then there's a little chapel they built there. I was with a group of pastors, so they went in and had a service. And they sang, uh, Christ arose and Christ the Lord is risen today. I couldn't sing. I, I just sat there and bowled through the whole thing. To realize what the Lord Jesus Christ endured for me. And that he, like the angel said, he is not here. He's risen, as he said. Verses 41 and 42. Uh, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein never man yet lay. There they lay Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. It was very close. So I'm, I'm more inclined to accept that. The idea that the, that the garden tomb that they show today is probably the actual place where he was buried. But I, I'm not an authority, so I can't speak with absolute. Uh, I'm glad to know here that I can say with the angels of old, he is not here. Wherever, whichever tomb it was, he is not here. He's risen, as he said. Do you know Bible-believing Christians are the only place you can take you to an open grave and say, here's where the body of the founder of my faith lay, but he's not there anymore. Mohammedans, that's what Muslims really are, Mohammedans, can take you to a grave and say, here lies the body of Mohammed, the founder of my faith. Yeah, he's still dead. The sad thing is he's in hell. Mormons can take you to the grave of another heretic, Joseph Smith, and say, here lies the body. I cannot do that. My grave is empty because my Savior lives and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This garden doesn't have a name like Gethsemane or like Eden, Pleasure and Oil Press. We simply know it as the Garden Tomb. I've subtitled this the Garden of Deliverance. Because here we find man's reconciliation to God is made possible. In fact, I have this quote here. I don't know where I got it from. Sin separated man from God, making reconciliation necessary. And sin separated God the Father from God the Son, making reconciliation necessary possible one required it the other realized it and so we have the not only man rebelled against god man's uh man rejected the lord jesus death was demanded death was demonstrated but here man is reconciled to god and guess what folks death is destroyed first corinthians chapter 15 first corinthians chapter 15 and just a couple verses verse 26 the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And then verses 51 and 50, uh, 51 to 57. Uh, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, for at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, where it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But, thank God for the Bible buts. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we, we apply that to many areas of our life. But specifically in the context. It's dealing with the victory over sin. Over death. Over hell. And over the grave. A lot of other applications. But that's the primary interpretation. And then because of that. Paul challenges the Corinthians. Therefore because of that my beloved brethren. Be steadfast unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Steadfast in the word of God. Unmovable in the will of God, abounding in the work of God, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then, of course, we have that final reference in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, where John writes, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and may I add, it is the final death. Death and hell will be destroyed. People that are there will not just be annihilated. They will not just cease to be, folks. They will be, hell will be cast into the lake of fire with all of the residents that are in hell right now. Folks, this is nothing to joke about. I heard Ted Turner one time say that he didn't want to go to heaven because it's so perfect it would be boring. People tell me, I can't think of a more boring than life than being an evangelist, being in church every night and just traveling across the country. Folks, I can't think of anything more exciting. And, and he went on to say, he said, I, I want to go to hell because all my buddies there. Well, I don't doubt that. And I'm not trying to be smart aleck now. Uh, he says, I want to go to hell because uh, hell's a mess and they, they need somebody to straighten things out down there. Now, folks, he can joke about hell all he wants to, but he doesn't understand what hell is like. He's not going to have... have uh, what do they call them, tailgate parties down there? He's not going to be boozing and partying with his buddies. It's a place of loneliness and outer darkness. He will see no one. It's a place of literal fire, but like the burning bush in Moses' day, that does not consume, and it burns for eternity. There is physical pain, Luke 16. There is physical suffering. But even more worse than that is the fact that there is spiritual suffering and spiritual pain knowing that you are separated from the God who loved you and the Christ who died for you. Folks, it need not be that way. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. Three gardens. The garden of denial, the garden, or rather disobedience, the garden of denial, and the garden of deliverance. I'm thankful for that last garden, aren't you? Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? Are you sure of it? The questions I usually like to ask are these. Are you saved? Number one. Number two, do you know it? Number three, do you have a Bible reason on which to base it? And number four, does your life reflect it? Four important questions. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the simplicity of our study tonight. And yet the seriousness of it. We are dealing, Father, here with things of eternal value. We can enjoy this life for the brief time that we're here on this earth, but Lord, it's not going to last forever. One day our life is going to end, we're going to die, and either heaven or hell it is. In life there are many choices, but in eternity there are but two. To receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, or to refuse him and remain lost and under your eternal omnipotent judgment. Lord, I pray for Sandy and Joe tonight as we try to have a conversation. 
that you'll open their hearts and give them a sensitivity, defeat the forces of hell that will seek to be distracting. Lord, speak to hearts here. There may be someone here, Father, who sits here under your condemnation in need of salvation. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed, as pastor comes, I wonder, is there anyone here to say, Preacher, God spoke to my heart tonight. And I, I can't answer that those four questions and say, yes, everything's, everything's as it ought to be. I'm not sure I'm saved. I don't have a Bible reason. Uh, my life doesn't reflect it. Well, it needs to. And I said, Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I'd like to be. Would you remember me in prayer? Anyone like that? Just slip up your hand and let me see it. I'd like to pray for you as we close our service in prayer. Father, we commit now this service to you and thank you for these who have come. Bless your word to our hearts and may it bear the fruit for which you've intended it. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor. Amen.
privilege to be here, to be blessed by the great hymns. And Father, where would we be without in our churches without these great, great hymns and the men and the women who wrote the precious words and the beautiful melodies and harmonies? Most of all tonight, we're thankful for the Word of God and thankful, thankful for this very clear and so vital message about the gardens in the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for giving us thy word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. And Lord, I pray for everyone here tonight who is saved that this has been just a time of uplifting, just a time of, of rejoicing in what the Lord has done for us. And yes, Father, a time of rededicating ourselves to, to thee, to him, because of all he's done for us. And then, Father, again, we pray for those here not yet saved, oh Lord, please work in their hearts and their lives that they may come and they confess themselves to be sinners and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, calling upon him for salvation. And we'll thank you, Lord, for all that's done. We thank you, Lord, for this evening again. And that we are here by divine appointment of that there is no doubt. Please watch over everyone tonight. Be with Brother Lynch, and I pray, Lord God, that this evening he'll be able to make contact with Joe and Sandy, and that tonight we both may trust Christ as Savior. Father in heaven, we just we, I would praise thee tonight for thy greatness, thy goodness, for all thy blessings, for thy love. And thank you, Lord, even for what these two days have meant to me personally, Father, the blessing of having my dear friend and brother here with us again. We thank you for this ministry. And Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' precious name.